1: Welcome to another episode of the Family Gamers Podcast. This is episode 318.
0: Hello, hello everybody to another episode of the show. As always, I'm your host, Andrew, and I am joined by my lovely and wonderful wife, Anitra. That's me. (laughs) And we are very excited to bring another fun episode of the Family Gamers Podcast to you. This week, we are going to be talking about some more board game terms.
1: Yeah, it's been a while, been a long time since we defined some board game terms. And if you've been listening to the show long enough, you probably know what these are, but maybe this will help you explain... Some of these things we throw around when you're talking to other people about board games.
0: Yeah, so this week we are going to talk about some board game mechanics. And uh, that's going to give us an excuse to talk about some board games we like. So (laughs) (laughs) a thing we always look for excuses to do. One of the things that we always look for excuses to do is to talk about goofy and dumb facts. So that's what I'm going to do now. Are you ready for some goofy and dumb facts? I don't
1: think you need an excuse anymore.
0: It's like a thing. It's your thing. Okay, so it's not an excuse. All right, great. Well, uh, both of these first two facts, I have three of them this week. Both of the first two came from the Guinness Book of World Records, which means they are dumb. Zach, this is for you. (laughs) The first one is the world record for the most consecutive catches of a returning paper aircraft (laughs) is... Three hundred eighteen. This was set nearly five years ago in Melbourne, Victoria, Australia. A fine gentleman by the name of Greg Schelless used a single sheet of A480 GSM paper to make a paper airplane, which he threw and then caught 318 times. Okay, man. Thank you, Australia. Something I'm a little bit more interested in <laughs> is... <laughs> The largest hot dog commercially available. Oh, no. (laughs) It is, of course, in the United States. Of course. Yeah. As of 2011, when this record was set, it was a $40 hot dog. Okay. (laughs) It weighs 3.18 kilograms, or seven pounds. Whoa. (laughs) This is by this fine organization, Gorilla Tango Novelty Meats, in Chicago, Illinois
1: It's a novelty for sure.
0: Yeah, they made this hot dog for Scruff McGruff. He's also from Chicago, Illinois. Did they? I don't know. But when anytime I think of Chicago, Illinois, I think of six hundred six five two, which means Scruff McGruff. So. <laughs> all right, <laughs> all right, and a little bit less dumb. Kind of cool. Let's talk turtles. There are an estimated three hundred eighteen species of turtles in the world.
1: Cool. Is this like specifically turtles, or is this does this include like tortoises?
0: I mean. Maybe it includes tortoises? I don't know. It also says here that they are on every continent except the Antarctic continent. That makes sense. Yeah. Turtles are cool. I like turtles. Anyway, those are my facts about the episode number, episode 318.
1: We also have a message from our sponsor. We are coming up very quickly on the gift-giving holiday season. Unbelievable. How do you help your kids understand that Christmas and the winter holidays aren't just a get-me-more-stuff time of year.
0: Buy board games for the whole family. (laughs) No?
1: Um, maybe? (laughs) Here are suggestions from our sponsor. One way is to reduce the number of actual material gifts and replace them with experiences, like a day at a theme park or a special trip with just one of the adults in the family. Another idea is to try shifting your kids' attention to others, giving instead of getting. There are a number of great ways to do this, from having them research and pick a charity to donate to, all the way to picking a name off a giving tree for the kids to shop for. Giving trees are often set up by churches, food banks, and some are in local malls. You could also spend time as a family volunteering together, clearing out old toys to donate, or just visiting nursing homes to spread holiday cheer. Let me tell you, folks in nursing homes will appreciate it very much. Finally, and perhaps the most important you need to make sure that you are modeling the behavior that you want to be teaching to your children. If you'd like to talk about other ideas to help pass on your values to your children, schedule a time to talk to First Move Financial by going to firstmovefinancial.com slash familygamers, and the first call is free.
0: Thanks so much to the team at First Move Financial for sponsoring the Family Gamers podcast. This is really a family-focused recommendation sponsor message this morning, huh? Yeah. Oh, this morning. I just said we're recording in the morning. That's probably where I get all of my energy from. (laughs) At this point in the show, we're going to talk about some games that we've been playing. A lot of new stuff on the list, or
1: yeah, Yeah, a lot of new new. stuff on the list this
0: week. (laughs) (laughs) All right, the first one on the list I'm going to use as a launching off point to talk about something else. Uh, The first one on the list is CoreQuest. Quest. So we talked to Dan Hughes on the show a while ago. The expansion for CoreQuest Quest just went through Kickstarter crowdfunding. And uh, it's a really great little dungeon crawl game.
1: Yeah, it was a lot of fun playing this with the kids. I like that it offers a little bit of opportunity for like your role playing and you're like, I'm going to hit him really hard or I'm going to run away. But it's not, it doesn't force the role playing. I mean, it is primarily a dungeon crawl, but there's enough going on and enough openness in the world and the characters that, you kind of have a direction, but you're not forced to do one thing or another.
0: Yeah, I guess. I mean, I don't really look at Core Quest as an RPG at all. I mean, you really I don't, like you're I don't playing either. the role on the, in the picture, right? But there's no actual role playing going on.
1: Right. I don't either. But I compare this to something like a dungeon crawl like Karak, where there's just not enough there for me anyway, to kind of flesh out the characters and do anything with them.
0: Well, I mean, yeah. So core definitely has some mechanics in it that lend itself more to a system that would usually be coupled with role-playing.
1: And you have missions that have a little bit of a story to them and things sure. like that. Yeah. 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 I'm not okay. saying it's a role-playing game. I'm saying it's a dungeon crawl that allows for a little bit more role-playing in it. Um, okay.
0: I, I mean, I'll I'll go along with that. So I, I mentioned my launching off point. If you are listening to this on November 21st, which is the day that this show comes out this evening at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, we're going to be on the full 42 with Katya Howitzen and Michael... I can't pronounce his Italian last name. G. Uh, (laughs) Uh, Originally, we were going to be playing Core Quest on the show, so we figured it's been a little while. Let's take out Core Quest and play it. That has changed to something else, which I also don't remember, but um, so that's why we play Core Quest.
1: We also have been playing some Codex Naturalis. That's going to be the snap review in the break for this show.
0: Mm -hmm. This game is so pretty.
1: It is so, so pretty. And it's definitely accessible for younger gamers. There's not actually any reading required in the game, but the theme is probably not going to be super interesting to most kids. But again, it's a very grown up looking game that they can play. Mm -hmm. So yeah, enjoying that one. It's nice. It's nice.
0: And the cards are small, which usually is annoying, but it means that this game doesn't take over your entire table.
1: I mean, this is one of those you're laying out a tableau and your cards have to be arranged in very specific ways. So it's actually a good thing that the cards are so small.
0: All right, next on the list is a game called Oh My Brain. This is a game from 25th Century Games. This is almost the game that we probably should have played last month, but I don't think we got it until the very end of the month. Yeah. This is a really interesting, um, I don't know what how you'd break this down into mechanics, but you have a, car- a handful of cards. And you are playing cards into a common pile in the middle. You also have a couple of cards that are kind of in a secret tableau in front of you. The game comes with actual card holders, so you can stand the cards up and you can see them, but they're not like in your hand. So you're playing cards from your hand into a central pile, and you always have to go up in value, kind of like Scout in the way that you always have to go up in value. And if you can't, then you have to discard that and give up one of your brains. You have these brain tokens that you start the game with. And there's a couple of different mechanics that come into play. There's some special cards that force you to do different things with brains, like roll some dice, and those might do things. And as you play out your hand, you need to pull the cards from your little secret tableau into your hand. And the first person to run out, essentially is kind of winning, because everybody else has to discard a number of brains equal to the number of cards they have left in their hand. And so you keep playing rounds of this game until somebody has run out of brains, and then whoever has the most brains left wins. It's a really cute zombie game. It's really kind of funny. The box is really cool. Like, just the way it's got, like, glow-in-the-dark stuff hidden on it that you don't see when you Mm -hmm. just have the Mm -hmm. box, and then just the way it opens and all that stuff. The presentation of this game is just really nice. I mean, it's not a super deep game, but, like, I don't know. A lot of 25th century stuff is is not super deep. This is even lighter than most of that stuff, okay. right? But um, it's a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, I think we'll be able to get it to the table a couple of times. It's pretty entertaining. We only played it at two players, but it supports obviously more than that.
1: And it was designed by Bruno Catala.
0: Oh, he must have been taking a break from something a little heavier. <laughs> Probably. <laughs>
1: You and I together tried out Kabuto Sumo.
0: Mm, I like this game. It's so fun.
1: I knew you would! I mean, oh. I knew I would too. This is a really cool game. I can't wait to play this at three players as well. But even at two players, it is great to just do this little coin push mechanic and try to push the other person's beetle off the, <laughs> the ring.
0: I mean, it's the sumo match, right? It uses that kind of that uh, carnival game coin pusher sort of mechanic and it's super fun. I really like it. It's very entertaining to read the facts about the beetles. Although, what was that? Was the Titan beetle? Was it what it was called? That can grow to be 6.6 inches long. Well, Ugh, big
1: Beetle Rose. Glad very, those very aren't big. in North America anyway. Yeah,
0: but, but we uh, got this in for review because we also got the expansion in for review, which is just fulfilling on Kickstarter right now. So by the time we publish a review of the expansion and the base game, I think we're going to talk yeah. about both of them. That'll be available at retail. The expansion is great. So this is really... Going off the rails, right? Like, so sumo wrestling is, it's kind of this very proper, like, tradition thing that's been around for a very long time. But with the expansion, they really leaned into the American professional Pro wrestling. wrestling. yes. So there's, like, coffins and chairs, and there's a little collapsible table. There's a ladder. There's a ladder, yeah. So <laughs> I'm really interested to see how all of these things fit into the base game. We just wanted to spend some time playing the base game first. Mm-hmm. Our eleven-year-old loves this game. Like every night after he saw it come out, he was like, "Can we play Kabuto Sumo? Can we play Kabuto Sumo?" I'm like, "Dude, <laughs> he's I, not I, wrong. I, I, I want, I want to. I really do, but I have to study for this thing." So it's a popular game already in the Smith in the Smith family. household. So yeah, really enjoying Kabuto Sumo. The next one is a game that we also got in for review this past week. I put a picture of the games that we got in for review on the Family Gamers Facebook page i think on the community i put it in there and this game is winter from devere
1: this is a really cool two-player abstract game that's an 18 card game i was not sure what to expect um, when you pulled this out Mm -hmm. but it's one of those that definitely feels much bigger than an 18 card game
0: yeah so the general premise of this game is it's pretty basic so there's light blue and dark blue you play as one of the two colors yeah and you're placing cards out onto the table, and at any point where you have four of the same color snowflake kind of creating a square, you can put one of your snowflake tokens of that color into that square, right? So your goal as the dark blue player would be to place these cards so that you get, you know, these four snowflake icons. Every card has four snowflake icons on it. It's just a question of it's, what colors
1: they are. They're a mix of, yeah, the, the dark and the light.
0: Right. So there's two kind of phases to the game.
1: Yeah, so the first phase is called the freeze, when you're putting cards out and you're either going to put a card out on your turn or you're going to place a token. Once all of the cards are out for the freezing, then the thawing begins. And honestly, for an abstract game, it felt incredibly thematic. As people who live in the Northeast, where there's a lot of freezing and thawing that starts about this time of year... And we'll go for the next six months.
0: (laughs) Um, Well, the thing I like about the freeze-thaw that felt very thematic to me was the freeze is just in one direction. You're just placing and placing and placing. The thaw... Is either it's coming off the board, so it's truly thawing out, or it's being removed from one section of the board and put back on another section of the board, which is kind of like a thaw-free cycle.
1: And that's why I said like, it felt incredibly thematic, because it's this like, oh, starting to thaw, but now freezing somewhere else, yep. and then thawing a little bit and freezing somewhere else mm-hmm, again. Mm-hmm. And so it's this back and forth of you're taking cards off or you're taking tokens off, But then as tokens come off and cards become available again, because you can't move or really touch a card if it's got a token on it, as tokens come off, these cards become available and then you jump on that and try to make a square somewhere else using those same cards so that then things refreeze again and you lock things down.
0: So the strategy of the game is really getting yourself in a position where the other player has as few decisions that they can possibly make as possible. And so if you can, for example, put yourself in a place during the thaw cycle where on your opponent's turn, there are no available cards. Every card has a token on it. The, your opponent is going to have to remove a token from the board, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. that's going to potentially free up a card for you, which you can then put somewhere else. So when you move a card during the thaw, you can only move it if you can then create another square that you can put a token on. Right. Otherwise, you have to take that card off the board. And so there's this really interesting back and forth. And once in a while when we played, we were like, all right, you know what? I just This is going to go on forever. I'm going to do something that could be risky. Boom. Yeah, And we both did that a couple of times. I ended up coming out on top on that one, luckily. <laughs> but it's a really interesting, almost like chess match kind of feel. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. And I think there's a real place for this because, like I said, it's an abstract two-player game. We've certainly played a lot of abstract two-player games in our day. We have an entire shelf dedicated to two-player games, and about half of them are abstracts, I would say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But this has a different place to it because it is so compact and because you don't know going in if this is going to be a really quick game or a really long one. But you can force it in one direction or the other, obviously.
0: Yeah. So that's winter. It's really fun.
1: All right. Well, I've got one more brand new game to talk about. But first, I'm going to mention that I played some more Square for Hire. Uh, with our son the other day
0: it's a great little game it is a
1: great little game he was just like hey mom i want to play a game with you and i was like all right we've got about 20 minutes and he's like i want to look at the tiny games we have a i have now a metal lunchbox full of (laughs) mostly button-shy games but a few other you know tiny little 18 card type games Uh, and so he opened it up and he's like "Mm, this one i like i pulled out several and then he's like squire for hire haven't played that in a long time So he and I sat down and played it and I was very frustrated because we used actually the two Square for Hire games together, the Mystic Runes and the original. Oh, yeah, yeah. And just the way the card flips worked out, he got a lot of the stuff he was looking for and I got none. (laughs) Absolutely zero. But it's still an enjoyable game even when that happens and I still have not seen any other game really like it. This idea of building out your inventory bag by stacking cards in such a way that certain items have to overlap or quote unquote go in the existing bag to be able to make the bag bigger. Mm-hmm. But the other new one that I played this week, and you played it too, is Disney's Mickey's Christmas Carol.
0: Yeah. This is a four <laughs> plus game.
1: Yeah, this is a game this is a game from Funko. And it is for kids. However, I see this being one of those games that like lives with the Christmas decorations or the Christmas books or whatever, and comes out during that one time a year. Maybe you sit down, and play it together as a family. Maybe once your kids have played it a couple times, they pull it out and play it solo. Because even though the rules don't tell you that you can play solo... You can play solo. It's a cooperative game. You're all working together to finish these little puzzles depicting scenes from the Mickey Christmas Carol. But you have to finish them in order, otherwise Scrooge is going to go around the clock and if he goes all the way around, then he wakes up and you lose the game.
0: It's incredibly simple. It's very cute. Literally our biggest critique of the game right now is the bag with the tiles in <laughs> it is not quite big enough. For, yeah. uh, for our meat hands, meat cleaver hands.
1: <laughs> for our adult-size <laughs> hands.
0: Yeah. Which I suppose again, like I, I think I even said this when we were playing like it's not for us. So it's like maybe just stick two fingers in it, and see if I we mean, can pull maybe. out. But anyway, anyway.
1: <laughs> I would recommend that if you're looking for Something with a Christmas theme that younger kids can play. That would be a great choice. Yeah,
0: you could play the game, watch the movie.
1: Yeah. It's so cute. that is Mickey's Christmas Carol from Funko. All right, Anitra. Yes. I
0: think that's it. That's all we've been playing. Not a lot this week. I don't It's, I don't oh, think. it's but plenty. Everybody, Thanksgiving is coming. Thanksgiving is coming. <laughs> we'll
1: you know some- next week we're going to be talking about more Green Team wins.
0: That's true. That's <laughs> going to happen. I, I will. I will gladly report on the quality of the family play of Green Team. I think we're actually having twelve people. Yeah, we at might actually max out to so twelve people. So we could people. attempt to max out the game. That would be. You know what? That would be really fun. I think we should like set that attempt as a goal. to do that. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Because we will have a seventy-four-year age range in that game between our <laughs> eight-year-old and your mom. Who
1: My eighty-two-year-old mother.
0: And uh, yeah, I don't know how else you give a really widespread accurate review of a game like Green Team Wins (laughs) without doing something like that. Like, literally, we're going to have to use two tables to play one game.
1: I think so, yeah.
0: That's amazing. That is absolutely amazing. All right, well, why don't we welcome our new community members before we jump into that Snap Review break and then come back and talk about some board games terms on the other half of the show.
1: All right, let's do that. Okay. So let's welcome the newest members to the Family Gamers Community on Facebook.
0: Yes, you can get there by going to thefamilygamers.com forward slash community.
1: Welcome to Zandera. Welcome to Eric. Welcome to Nick.
0: Welcome to Amanda.
1: Welcome to Annabelle.
0: And welcome to Amari. Thanks so much for joining the community. I think it's a great place to be. There's lots of great conversations going on in there, talking about games we've been playing, maybe game recommendations. If you want to ask for recommendations for gifts, I mean, you should start with going to thefamilygamers.com forward slash holiday 2022. But... If you want more than that, you can always go to the community and ask for ideas. Everybody just loves to be helpful. And Mm -hmm. that's a great place to go to get like minded folk who will help you find the right board games for your kids.
1: 100%.
0: And with that, we're going to take a break. We'll be right back. So, Nietzsche, do you know what a codex is?
1: Uh, Yeah, it's a sort of an ancient book that was hand-lettered and hand-bound. It's not as easy to read as a modern book, but a whole lot easier than a scroll or a wax tablet. (laughs) And
0: a codex was the first reference book, since you can open it to anywhere and give ample
1: room for illustrations. And use both sides of the page. Wow.
0: Medieval thinkers like Galileo hoped to catalog all that was known of the natural world and create a Codex Naturalis.
1: This is a snap review for Codex Naturalis. Codex Naturalis is a small card game designed by Thomas Dupont and illustrated by Maxime Morin. Two to four players can play in about half an hour. There's no reading required, and it's for ages seven and up.
0: In this game, you'll compile information about the four kingdoms living in the forest. Animals, plants, insects, and fungi. I'm a (laughs) fungi. To add to your Codex Naturalis.
1: So nature, let's talk about the art in this little game. So the cards are really small, but they're gorgeous. There's these monochrome illustrations with saturated purple or red or blue or green, and they're set off by gold foil highlights. They're so pretty. Look at how pretty they so are. pretty. I definitely
0: get the feeling of working on a medieval or Renaissance-era manuscript and documenting all of the different creatures, animals, and plants, things like that.
1: The symbology on the cards is clear, but it did take a little getting used to.
0: Yeah, and you need that to play the game. So let's talk about how to play Codex Naturalis.
1: At the beginning of the game, you'll get a hand of three cards, plus a starter card to lay on the table, and a secret objective.
0: Each turn, you'll play a card from your hand, then draw a card to replace it.
1: Playing a card means covering one or more corners of cards that are already in your display on the table. You can only cover open corners, which are indicated with bold outlines. But some of these corners have resources on them.
0: Plants, animals, insects,
1: and fungi. When you cover a resource, it's no longer available for you to use.
0: But why would you want resources? Because the gold cards, which are the ones that award points, require you to have certain combinations of resources showing in your display before you can put them down.
1: Each gold card has its own requirements and its own way to award points. Some are a flat three or five points. Some are two points per corner covered when you put the card down. And some award points for showing bookmaking objects. Quills, Inkwells, and Papers.
0: After you've played a card, choose a new card, either from the resources or from the gold stack.
1: If it turns out you can't or don't want to play a card from your hand face up, you're always allowed to play it face down, whether it's a resource card or a gold card. This gives you four open corners and a resource in the middle of the card that can't possibly be covered.
0: Track your points on the central board as you receive them. And when a player reaches 20 points, or the two card decks run out, finish the round and give every player one more turn.
1: Remember those secret objectives we mentioned (laughs) earlier? Every player has a secret objective, and there are also two common objectives face up on the table.
0: Objectives award points for sets of matching resources, sets of bookmaking objects, or specific card arrangements. And they can be earned more than once if you have enough sets.
1: At the end of the game, everyone calculates additional points earned from meeting these objectives.
0: So, Anitra, what did we expect from Codex Naturalis?
1: Every Bombix game I've ever seen has been beautiful. And this is no exception. I was surprised by just how small this box is, though. And I'm not usually a fan of games that use really small cards like these ones.
0: Reading through the rulebook, there are some typos and misprints. It's not enough to make the game difficult to understand, but it's helpful to be aware of them if you encounter them because it could lead to some confusion.
1: I was a little confused because the box says 7+, but once we opened this up and looked at the rulebook, it seemed kind of (laughs) complicated, and there was a lot of detail on the cards. So I just wasn't sure how that was all going to work together with the gameplay.
0: There's really no other game that quite looks like this and captures some of that ancient illustrated manuscript feel, even though the art is on these really small cards.
1: So let's talk about the surprises. Uh, The first surprise is that these small cards are still nice and clear for almost everything. And being this small keeps the game from being a total table hog.
0: With the art style on these cards and the way you can overlap all the different cards, including finding ways for branches to re-overlap if you do it right, it really felt like I was building this complex, interrelated world, which was probably my favorite part of the game.
1: This is a relaxing and gently puzzling sort of game, but our kids didn't love it. Part of that is the theme, which is just not that interesting for them, but part of it is because of the way the points are scored.
0: Although Codex Naturalis is all about building your own manuscript for points, the points are publicly tracked and they become the endgame trigger. This kind of meant that our kids felt like they were falling behind or they focused too much on the points on the cards themselves and less about the objectives, both public and private.
1: And those objectives can allow huge jumps at the end of the game. So, Andrew, would we recommend Codex Naturalis?
0: I think we do recommend Codex Naturalis. It's probably not a game that I'd pull out with my youngest gamers, but this is a good game to start playing with that middle age range. The box says it goes down to seven, and that's about right. It will make your younger kids feel a little bit older as they play a game that artistically feels so mature.
1: This is a serious subject, cataloging the plants and animals and fungus, etc. of the world.
0: It is. So what would we rate Codex Naturalis from Bombix?
1: I think we're going to give it three and a half pages out of five.
0: And that's Codex Naturalis.
1: In a snap. And we're back.
0: So in the past, we have done a bunch of different board game term related podcast. Episode 64. We talked about 4X Deck Builder, Press Your Luck, Social Deduction. Episode 112, we talked about Take That, Area Control, Worker Placement, and Resource Management. So we thought we would tackle some more of these this week.
1: So let's start by talking about drafting.
0: Sure. So drafting is a mechanic that usually refers to cards, but doesn't
1: always refer to cards. Not always, yeah. Yeah. Drafting means you're choosing cards or some other kind of resource from a pool that other players will also choose from. So it might be cards, it might be dice. In Draftosaurus, it's little dinosaur meeples. Dinosaur meeples! They're so cute. (laughs) But there are two basic families of drafting. There's open drafting and closed drafting.
0: Yeah, so most of the time when we say drafting, when we talk about a drafting game, we usually mean a closed draft. And this means... That you are picking your cards and keeping them face down, or maybe just putting them in your hand and not showing them to your opponents. Or in Draftosaurus, you're kind of hiding your dinosaur meeple selection as you wait for everybody else to pick theirs so that you can then put them on your board. So, Closed is it's secret. It's private.
1: And Closed is explicitly passing a group of things from one player to another.
0: With some mechanism by which they are somewhat unknown. So the person who handed them to you knows what's there, but the people around the table that had seen that collection previously when it had more stuff in it or hadn't seen it at all yet would have no idea.
1: I'm going to go on a tangent very briefly. Uh Uh-oh. We have played two games that have something called a Winston Draft. Yes. Which is a modification of the Closed Draft That works really well for two players.
0: Yeah, this is a little, well, I think you could do it with more than two players, but it's a little confusing and hard to explain. But the two games that you have in mind are Studies in Sorcery, which we reviewed in the month of October, and Canopy, which we reviewed probably last year, I Uh,
1: think. About a year ago. Yeah. Yeah. And this is a thing where you are looking at a pile of cards on the table. You get to look at the whole pile and then decide whether or not you want it. If you don't want it, you put it face down again and add another card. So there's always an element of uncertainty, but you get some idea of what's getting passed around. So there's an element of it feels more like a card drafting game would, when you say, have maybe four players. So you know that you're going to see some of the cards again that you saw at the beginning of the round, but you don't know which ones.
0: Yeah. And you said something interesting there. You said the words passed around. And so when we talk about the other kind of drafting, which is open drafting, typically an open draft is something where you have a collective pool. And that's what makes Winston drafts so interesting because in a Winston draft, everything is out on the table. It's just face down.
1: Yeah. Winston draft Toes the line in between the two because mm-hmm. there are multiple piles in a Winston draft, which makes you feel more like closed drafting, but it's all on the table and You're limited in how you can pick from it, which is more like an open draft.
0: So the thing that's really interesting about this Winston draft, and I think you kind of alluded to it, is that level of uncertainty. So in a very classic Winston draft, like you said, after you look at a pile, if you elect not to take it, you would put another card into that pile. So unlike a closed draft where the person going immediately after you has to choose from... Only some things that you know about, right? You know exactly what the next person's going to have. In an open draft, you know exactly what the next person's going to have because everybody knows what the next person's going to have. In a Winston draft, you don't because you know... Everything except for whatever you added. So, I mean, that that add, I mean, I'm sure there are other Winston Draft style games out there where what you add is different than just a single card. It could be two cards. It could be some other kind of thing. It could be, you know, there's three different kinds of resources. And, you know, I mean, there's there's a lot of different you mm-hmm. know possibilities there. But that's one thing that makes Winston Drafting really interesting, even though it's a little bit difficult to explain.
1: So let's pivot and talk a little bit more about open drafting now. Mm-hmm. So open drafting is, yeah, picking from some kind of a common pool that everybody can see at the same time, and everybody can see what it is that you're picking. That's an important part of the open draft.
0: So one of the things I really like about open drafting is that it's a great tool for teaching. It's a great tool for teaching how drafting works. Yes. Because everybody can kind of talk about, and we did this with our kids, and I think probably a lot of parents do when you're trying to teach your kids kind of how to play games, especially if you're doing an instructional version of a game or something like that. You can say, well... Based on your board and what we all know, here's some reasons why you might want to take these or you might want to take those. And you obviously can't do that in a closed draft system. So a great example of open drafting games that you can use are the first century games. So Spice Road or Century Golem Edition. Those games are open draft games or Azul from Plan Plan B Games, I think. Yeah,
1: Or Bugs on Rugs, which is a very family friendly open draft card game. Mm -hmm. most open draft games have some kind of a cost or some kind of mechanism that will steer you more towards certain picks than others. In Century Spice Road, Century Golem, that cost is that you have to pay gems or spices from your group to draft cards that are further along on the track. The first one is free, the second one costs one, etc. In Azul, the drafting restriction is that you're going to dump tiles on the floor, quote unquote, from the group that you pick. And that makes this tension of you're changing up what's available in the future by what you draft now. And if you try to draft from the floor, you might have to take a point penalty to do that. The first player who who drafts from the floor in a round does that. There are also games where there's an open draft, but it's simply turn order based. Sagrada does this, role player does this. You get to draft dice, but it's, you know, hey, we roll them, we put them out lowest value to highest value. Some of these might have some extra bonus that comes with them, but mostly it's just, hey, first player gets first pick, second player gets second pick, et cetera.
0: Yeah, we talked about drafting in episode 252, which was a Room to Grow series where we talked about simple drafting games and progressively more complicated ones. So mm-hmm. definitely an episode to check out if drafting is something that you weren't familiar with and now you're a little bit curious. The next games are very different. (laughs) It's a very large family of games. These are games that go from, you know, mainstream Ameritrash games to very complex games. And these are dexterity games.
1: So this is a huge family. Mm -hmm. When we talk about dexterity games, it covers such a wide range of things that you might do. What all dexterity games have in common is that they require manual coordination, you have to do something specific with the game pieces. Usually there is some kind of finesse, fine motor skills involved. You're stacking or you're flicking or you're balancing or you're throwing. There are weird ones like Yogi where you are literally having to twist your own body into various positions.
0: Twist, you say? <laughs> How about Twister? Twister, twister is the, the dexterity classic game. dexterity game.
1: Yeah. Most of these games are pretty silly. Or
0: super casual or, you know, something along those
1: lines. But not all of them are. And some very, very classic pub games or table games we think of are dexterity games like darts or...
0: or crokinole, which is super popular these days.
1: Or cornhole. Mm-hmm. Those are all dexterity sure. games. Sure.
0: Then we start to kind of blend the line between dexterity games and sports, but that's a different thing.
1: Well, it's an outdoor game, right? <laughs> I have a question for you. Sure. Is Happy Salmon a dexterity game? Because this is a game where you're matching cards and then you have to do what's on the card with the other person. But it doesn't really require that same level of finesse. It's more that the action is just a thing you do. In yeah, the I don't the think game. I
0: would consider that a dexterity game. I don't know what I would call it. It's just like kind of a party game kind it of thing. It
1: puts it in a very weird place. Happy Salmon and uh, Funky Chicken. They are not dexterity games. There are a handful of games that we would not call dexterity games that still get you moving your body. (laughs) Sure. But yeah, let's dive into this just a little bit more.
0: Well, one of the things that's really neat about dexterity games over the last few years now is that we're starting to see some dexterity games that are actually well themed, right? A lot of dexterity related games are fairly abstract. You know, we mentioned darts and Crokinole, for example, mm-hmm. like those are abstract games, but flick em up, uh, flip ships, yep. right? Tabletop golf, Mars, tabletop golf, I- ice cool, ice cool. Yeah. is another great example of a dexterity game with some strong theming on it. So There's a lot in this, right? It doesn't have to be these table game kind of things or the indoor version of an outdoor game kind of thing. It can actually be games that have some really interesting theming. I think of, um, what's that, Catacombs that is all about flicking, or even to a degree like Dungeon Drop would be a dexterity game.
1: I'm not sure Dungeon Drop is a dexterity game. There is a physical element to it of your dropping the cubes, but you're not then doing something manually dexterous with them.
0: Yeah, but you can drop cubes in different ways. Like, is Drop It a dexterity game?
1: Drop It has a a dexterity element for sure,
0: yes. If Drop It has it, then Dungeon Drop does.
1: Okay, okay. So some of these are dexterity and other mechanics that we'd talk about. My favorite really strange dexterity game is Tournament of Towers. Sure. Which has both drafting and dexterity. (laughs) First, you pass around cards and use them to draft the pieces that you're going to build with. Then you match up the plastic pieces with the cards in your hand, and you have to use them all and try to build something that won't fall over.
0: Yeah, I guess all those stacking, I don't know what else you would, so like Rhino Hero is a dexterity game.
1: All the Rhino Hero games are a dexterity game. Jenga is a (laughs) dexterity game.
0: Yeah, sure. I can't disagree with any of that.
1: Okay, I've got one more weird one that I think fits in the dexterity category. Sure. Shaky manner.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I guess so. You
1: are, you are shaking this kind of box puzzle thing around to get certain pieces in certain rooms.
0: Yeah. And you have to, you know, (laughs) manually kind of articulate the box in ways to get certain pieces into certain places. That's absolutely a dexterity game. Yeah. Yeah. So there's lots of different. (laughs) ways in which to approach this we uh we talked about dexterity games to degree in games get you moving which was episode 92 220 (laughs) something episodes ago
1: back in 2018 we
0: talked about this so scroll on back in your podcast catcher (laughs) to episode 90 i don't even know if you can go back that far i think it's only 50 episodes but you can certainly find that at thefamilygamers.com
1: we'll also link to that in the show notes all right and our last board game mechanic term Mm -hmm. slash family that we're going to define. This is
0: a a mechanic that I have been initially begrudgingly (laughs) and now wholeheartedly falling into love with, and that is the roll and write slash flip and write genre.
1: So let's start with roll and write. Yes. A roll and write is a game where you roll dice- and then mark down results, either on paper player sheets or reusable whiteboards, yep. depending and the on the The
0: classic game. here is Yahtzee. I mean, that is the old school OG roll and write.
1: Well, so there is one other aspect to a roll and write that makes it a roll and write and not just a dice rolling game where you keep score. And that is your choices in what you mark down on your sheet limit your choices in future rounds. Sure.
0: Yeah. Okay. I take that.
1: Yep. It's why I say zombie dice is not a roll and write. Because you're just rolling dice, and then you break down your score at the end of your turn, and you move on.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's not ne- necessarily about it limiting your choices later on, but it is affecting your future choices. Because you may be trying to set collect in a certain way, and that's not really limiting your choices, but it's affecting your choices going forward.
1: Um. Sure, yes. Well, I mean,
0: since we're going to go through this whole conversation about challenging people, would you consider Roll For It a roll and write game? Or flip and write, because you're flipping out cards, then you're drafting those cards, and then you have to roll to match
1: what you flipped over. No, because there is no writing involved. Okay. Uh, You are placing dice, and you get them back. It's a game where you're rolling out dice, and you're making choices. There's some pressing your luck. But there is no writing, therefore it is not a roll and write game.
0: Okay, but those choices that you make do limit your future. They roles. do limit your future so roles. It's, yes, it's,
1: it's, it's got in order some to be
0: a roll and write or a flip and write. It's got to have all three elements.
1: Yes, yes,
0: <laughs> because it's a roll and flip and set collect. Right, not a write.
1: Correct. Even though there you is said no write. writing. <laughs> <laughs> So before we go any further, let's also talk about a flip and write. A flip and write is the same basic idea. You're marking down results. They limit your future choices. But you're using cards instead of dice. That is the only real change between a flip and write and a roll and write.
0: Well, what this does is usually in a roll and write game, not always, but usually there's more than one die at play at any given time. In a flip and write game, that is very rarely the case. It depends
1: on the game. Right. Well,
0: Well, that's why I said usually and rarely, not always and never. Sure. (laughs)
1: All right, fair enough.
0: All right, so we talked about some of our favorite Roland Rights in episode 190, and we did a Room to Grow with four difficulty levels instead of our normal three in episode 240. So those are 50 episodes apart. And now, whatever, More. 80 episodes later, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we're talking about actually defining this word for everybody who had no idea, apparently, what we were talking about during those two. So let's talk about some of our favorite games in this genre.
1: Well, first, like you said, the Absolute classic is Yahtzee.
0: And by the way, I'm going to take a just a step off of that for a second. We characterize certain games like Dice Throne as Battle Yahtzee, but Dice Throne is not a rolling. It's not a rolling because and write. there's no writing. Right. No. No. <laughs> no
1: writing. writing. <laughs> um, but we call it Battle Yahtzee because it has the other elements of making dice sets. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah.
0: Well, there are two games from the same designers that we love a lot that are in fact rolling rights. And those are Fleet Dice <laughs> and Three Sisters.
1: <laughs> yes, Fleet the Dice game and Three Sisters are both fantastic, but they would not be a good way to introduce people to Rolling Rights.
0: No, in <laughs> fact, there is a different game which is on our Holiday 2022 gift list which is our go-to introduction. This is actually a Flippin' Right, not a Rolling Right, and that game is super mega super lucky box
1: mega lucky box
0: <laughs> we need to come up with the jingle and see if we can uh talk game right into <laughs> using it or something that'd be a lot of fun but yeah so super mega lucky box is a flip and right game it's got some of that same comboing that you see in the roll and rights of fleet dice and of three sisters it's certainly a lot easier kids can play it i really can't recommend fleet dice and three sisters to younger kids they're, they're just too there, there's too much going on yeah So those are some of our big favorites. A flippin' right that I really, really like that absolutely turns some things on its head is cartographers. Yes. So you want to talk about some of the interesting things about cartographers? One of them is the scoring and the other one is the monsters.
1: Well, so the first thing that I'm going to say is that flippant rights have an advantage in some aspects over rolling rights in that you can predict a little bit more of what's coming with a flip and right, like in super mega lucky box. Hey, I've seen the number nine twice now. There won't be any more nines this round. You might not get to the level of it's very likely I will see this, but you can at least get to the level of it's very likely I won't see. Sure. X. Or
0: in cartographers, if you know you haven't hit a monster yet, you know that monster's coming.
1: Yeah. In cartographers, another monster is added to the deck each season. So, especially if you didn't see any in, in the first season, you know it's even more likely that you're going to see at least one later. But monsters also mean that you pass your player sheet to another player so that they can try to mess with you as much as possible. Most flipping rights and rolling rights have that kind of solitaire-ish feel to it of like, I am working on my thing. It might be a little bit of a race to get to a certain thing before somebody else does, but... That's my thing. That's mm-hmm. not anybody else's.
0: Yeah, and Cardiacomers totally changes that, which is really a lot of fun. Then you can get into games like uh, Dungeon Academy from The Op, which we reviewed a few years ago, which mm-hmm. is a really writing speed game,
1: I guess. We have called it a roll and write in the past because you are rolling dice. It affects what you can do on your sheet and your choices affect your future choices. But what you're rolling is 16 <laughs> dice that end up in a 4x4 four four grid and they define the dungeon for everybody.
0: Yeah, which is a totally different way of doing roll and rights yes. from literally anything else from that we've ever else. really talked about. So that adds this speed element instead of any kind of roll and dice draft like in your fleet dice. Right. Um or, you know, any of the other kinds of interesting mechanics. So, you know, Roll and Rights really went through kind of like a 3-year evolution phase, (laughs) I want to say, over the last couple of years where we really saw a lot of interesting variety in the way those things work.
1: I'm going to tell you one more that I think does something very different and interesting. And that's Get On Board that we reviewed earlier this year. Sure. Previously published as Let's Make a Bus Route. So that's a flip and write game. You're flipping out cards and they're affecting what you're going to do. But there's a central board where you're building out your bus route And that's really where the changes happen. And then your sheet is more like a score sheet. But because of the way things score, that's affecting how you want to put things out on the central board. And it allows for a lot more of that other players' decisions affect you. I would still call it a flip and write, although only barely. Mm. But it's definitely got all of those elements in it still. it's Good stuff. Can I get on my hobby horse briefly and talk about baby's first roll and write? (laughs) Sure. (laughs) This is Color It from Habba. We mentioned this when we did our Room to Grow, but this is a roll and write stripped down to its absolute basics. You roll some dice. You get to pick two of them to determine what number space you're going to color in and what color you're going to color it in. And you can do it with more restrictions or fewer restrictions depending on the age of kids you're playing with. But it's a great way to bring these mechanics down to something a three or four-year-old could do.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep, I totally agree. I'm going to go on the complete opposite side and for my last game <laughs> in this section, and I'm going to go with something that involves rolling and writing, but also big, chunky wooden tablets and some little, like, I don't know, spikes or whatever you want to call them, and that is roll through the ages, the Iron Age. Yeah. So this is a totally different kind of roll and write.
1: Yes. It's weird, but I <laughs> like it.
0: <laughs> well, this game has resource tracking, and you're building monuments, which you're writing down and, and building up over time. It's really an interesting way to attack this genre. And it makes it a lot more complicated.
1: Yeah. Like you said, it's roll and write. But in between the rolling and the writing is this intermediate step of um, sort of set collection resource management. And you're only going to use those resources when you get enough of them, which is why you have a player board and as well as a player sheet.
0: (laughs) Right. I think I've never beaten you at this game. I think that's an accurate statement.
1: I I think that's probably accurate.
0: And then obviously, you know, we've got the things that we've talked about before, your Hadrian's Wall, your Twilight Inscription, some of those games (laughs) that just get really insanely complicated. So there's lots of options all across the gamut from Color It to Twilight Inscription, depending on your desired weight, really.
1: Yeah. And everything in between. Mm -hmm. And Nowadays, we're seeing a lot of different themes as well. The first several roll and writes I heard about were all pretty abstract. I mean, I think I had heard of Fleet the Dice Game, but all of the lighter ones were things like Quicks and Quingo and Ganshin Clever
0: mm-hmm.
1: and well, Hex you Roller. Well, you had a
0: Hex Roller kick.
1: Yes. Yeah. And all these things are great, but they're not going to pull everybody in because they're just numbers on a sheet. hmm
0: but there's something really nice about the puzzle of getting everything to fit together. And when you flip over that last, almost like a game like Calico, where you flip that last thing and it's exactly what you want it to oh, be. Oh, yeah. And you slide it. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, it's awesome. It's awesome. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. And again, they run the whole gamut. There's also flipping rights that are kind of thematic, but not super thematic, like Metro X and Welcome To mm-hmm. and things like that, where it's really just about getting your numbers in the right places. But at least there's something there for a goal of why you're doing it. Yeah. It's good stuff.
0: All right. Well, that was an interesting topic. There are so many (laughs) things that we could define in board games. And we did a little bit more of that this week. If anybody has any thoughts about any of these topics, about drafting or dexterity games or rolling right, flipping rights, maybe you want to share what your favorite games are in any of these genres or any of these mechanics. There's lots of different ways that you can reach out to us. The best place is that community on Facebook, thefamilygamers.com forward slash community, or you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at FamilyGamersAA.
1: You can also email us anitra at familygamers.com and
0: andrew at FamilyGamers.com.
1: if you give us permission we will read your email on the show
0: if you would like to give us one of those micro reviews like we got from debbie a couple of weeks ago maybe about a roll and write game or a flip and write oh, game yeah. or a dexterity game or whatever we would love to read that on the show as well and you can send those to us over email or via you know any of the contact methods that we've already listed
1: the holiday season is upon us, yes. and first of all, you should go check out our holiday gift guide, thefamilygamers.com slash holiday 2022, mm-hmm. but maybe also think about buying some Family Gamers merch for your yeah. loved ones.
0: Yeah, you can pick up t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, and more at thefamilygamers.com slash merch.
1: We are well and truly into hoodie weather. Here in Massachusetts, it will be hoodie weather for the next six months. <laughs> at
0: least. I, don't, I mean, six months makes it to May. Like late May is not hoodie weather.
1: I mean, it makes it to April, but yes.
0: All right. Well, whatever. I, I suppose watching a baseball game in the evening, it gets a little bit chilly and I wouldn't <laughs> mind wearing a hoodie for those.
1: I'll still be wearing a winter coat for that.
0: Thanks. <laughs> Please don't forget to subscribe to the show. Tell your friends about the show and leave us a review at Apple Podcast or whatever your podcast subscription source is. You can find us on Amazon Music, TuneIn, Stitcher and
1: Spotify. The Family Gamers is sponsored by First Move Financial. Go to firstmovefinancial.com slash familygamers to learn how the team at First Move Financial can help you pile up the victory points.
0: Well, Anitra, I, and I'm sure you will join me, would like to wish all of our listeners in the United States a happy Thanksgiving week. I hope you buy all of the board games on sale on Black Friday. Don't forget to support your friendly local game stores. And until next week, everybody, play play games games with with your kids. kids.